Welcome, everybody, to the TV podcast and our last look at Voltron Legendary Defender. Season 8 is in the rearview mirror, as is the Netflix series. Joining me is my uh, other half, Shannon Sutter. Hello. Dan Morin is here. Uh, I'll form the head, etc., etc. Moises, will you form the torso? If it's made out of vehicles, sure. <laughs> Let's talk about vehicles later, That's Moises. That's pandering. <laughs> And Anthony Johnston is with us again. I'm a leg! (laughs) You know, out of eight seasons of this show, I can't think of a better line in the entire series than, I'm a leg! (laughs) (laughs) All right, it was a long road getting here. Seasons getting split in two. This is a show that began on June 10th, 2016, and we actually got eight nominal seasons out okay, of it. I, I, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the first thing I was going to say is how did we cram eight, the eight seasons crammed into two and a half years kind of Dan, really Dan, invalidates are, the term season. Dan, are you familiar with the fact that we get like 10 seasons of culinary reality shows in a year? I have never watched any of those. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> also, you know, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah, this was a show that was made for binging, and some of the binges were a little bit easier to digest than others because we had two of these seasons just cut in half. 13, 13, 13, 13. If you take the first episode and chop it into thirds, we had how many episodes? This is math. 78. 78, yeah. And it all came to an end with season eight, which dropped on December 14th with launch date and took us through the end of the beginning. And I think it is fair to say a rather different season than every season that had come before on this show. I would say that's absolutely fair. Uh, Yeah, it looked slightly different. I think they got different animators in. Uh, Not the same studio. I'm sure it was still Studio Mir, but uh, clearly there were different people you know, at the pens, as it were. Uh, the colouring even looked different in places. And, of course, the content, well, we'll get into that later, but that was felt quite different to some of the seasons that preceded it as well. I continuously suffer from the problem of, even though I have watched all of these and all of them within pretty close proximity to when they air, utterly forgetting so much of what has happened in the previous seasons that, like, I guess I don't have as much continuity in my head of what, like, last season looked like as compared to this season. So... In my mind, it all looks pretty consistent, but I I can tell you that my memory is unreliable. (laughs) Well, and there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot. Again, 78 (laughs) episodes in two and a half years is a lot of content, even if they're, you know, half hour episodes. Uh, Or in your case, 78 episodes in, what was it, a week that you binge the whole thing? I I did not binge the whole thing in a week. (laughs) That sounds like madness. (laughs) I've been watching as it all came out, so I... It's, um, yeah, I agree, though, that the, the content, which I'm sure we'll get into, it took a different spin on it. And I think to a certain degree, that was somewhat necessary based on everything that led up to that. But, you know, how well they executed on that is a matter for debate, which I'm sure we will debate. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> Just to sort of recap, the first six seasons, I would say, there was kind of a fairly consistent through line in the kind of story that was being told. It's Voltron versus the Galra Empire and stitching together a coalition against the Galra and things like that. And we lost lead bad guys at a fairly regular clip Mm -hmm. along the way there. Uh, Zarkon in the rearview mirror, Lotor in the rearview mirror. And then we get to season seven. And season seven is the return to Earth and the defense of Earth. And then we get this season, which 
it starts out trying to save the last of the Galra uh, held worlds, but it turns pretty quickly into the leftover Altaeans have been hoodwinked by Anerva, the former Hagar, and Hagar is on a mission to use those Altaeans to basically erase all of existence, or at least that's the way she goes after her initial plans to pull her family back together fail. I felt like seasons one through six, consistent story, and then season seven, really different plot, and then season eight, really different plot. That's where I'm sort of coming at it, Dan. Part of it is there was a bit of turnover among directors and some of the writing staff after season six. Um, I don't know how the contracts ran out or people moved on to other projects. So I agree that there is a different feel towards season seven and eight. And I agree that you have sort of these mini arcs going on inside seasons one and two, the fight against Zarkon. Seasons three through six, quote unquote, the original three seasons three through four before Netflix started playing were the fight against Lotor. And then season seven and eight, ideally, the fight against Anerva. She was the last big bad left. I don't know if the original writers and directors had, if the entire crew had stayed together all the way through, whether season seven and eight would have been better balanced between the two major threads of going back to Earth and saving Earth and taking care of Anerva. But as they turned out, they are really kind of split. So season seven is its own mini story and season eight is its own mini story. I have to think that part of this changeover may have been part of the reason season seven I liked overall. Season eight, as you guys have said, has felt very different. I felt that so much character development was wiped away or ignored. And I wound up feeling like basically after seven seasons of a show that was going to be one of the animated series of the decade, they not only did not stick the landing, but they fell on their butts and rolled off the mat, off the lines, and into the judges' table, and their leotard popped open. <laughs> <laughs> Slide whistle. I, yeah. You know, my, my, my thing is, when it comes to the writing staff, if there had been a changeover in showrunners, I would think that it'd be something that, that, I, that I could tie more to the writer's room changing over a bit, um, but it, 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 there wasn't complete like 100% turnover and I, I feel like uh, well and two uh, of the most regular two of the regular writers on season eight uh were Mitch Iverson and mm-hmm. Josh Hamilton both yeah. of whom have lo- been with the show for a long time so yeah. I'm yeah, sure there was some there. changeover but yeah, yeah I, I, I don't yeah I, it just says it wasn't complete well, the yeah showrunners sh- were largely the same right yeah the showrunners were the, the same the entire were series there all the way through yes I, I think I think structurally it ends up coming down to the way that season eight was set up in the overall big, huge arc of things. And for me, the the thing that I ran into watching both seasons seven and eight was they would be touching back on things from season three, season four, season five. And even though this whole thing got delivered to our brains over the course of two and a half years, I found myself going, oh, yeah, that's right, that character. Yeah. Oh, yep. yeah, that's right. That one episode from season three that I guess... Mm-hmm. they they expected me to remember a bit better than I did, but I was still able to follow along. But I felt uh, much more so than in previous seasons with season eight that it was all denouement, all denouement, just moving, 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 moving. And I, I would phrase it a little bit differently about the, the loss of 
the juicy, wonderful character development that we all loved from the first seven seasons of the show. It's that they were hitting so much plot in season eight that they didn't have that kind of breathing room for character development. It was like, all right, we front loaded all the character development. Now we're just going to resolve everything. Well, and a lot of that plot was callbacks to things like you say from season ago that we probably didn't need to see again, like Warlord Larn and Warlord Ranvig. Who even remembers them? I wasn't. I wasn't entirely. I I was not entirely sure that they weren't gaslighting me. I didn't. (laughs) With those in particular, it really was a those. Okay, okay. I'm just going to have to trust it. And they spent a lot of time looking at other characters too, which I think was interesting. Like you know, they decided to take time out from dealing with our our main characters. So we have the episode with like uh, Veronica Mm -hmm. and uh, sorry, Axa, Axa, Axa. Uh, so, like, you know, learning a little bit about them. We have the episode with where Kincaid is doing the documentary about life on the Atlas. And so, like, you know, it took out episodes here and there to because our cast has expanded so much in season mm-hmm. seven that they spent a lot more time feeling like they wanted to build up those other characters, which is an interesting choice in your last season, right? Like, if you had done that halfway through the series, like, oh, we're expanding our roster and we're going to spend some time building you up and making you care about these characters. But in some ways, by the end of this season, like you have that whole episode with Kincaid, you basically and then don't never see, see the MFE again, pilots yeah. like through the rest yeah. of the season, which is like odd. Okay, so which I was really bummed about because yeah, I, I liked really them. liked the MF pilots. Yeah, right, yeah, and, exactly. and I liked that episode as well. I mean, you know, yes, it was you know essentially a lot of it was filler, but it was still managing to move the plot along. A lot of the trouble I've had in past filler episodes is that they didn't do anything to advance the plot. This one at least did. But yeah. I understand, yeah, that they concentrated a lot of the attention on the MFEs at a point. It would have been helpful if there had been more emphasis on our main characters. Yeah. I came away from season eight rather more positively than Shannon did. Um, although that's mm-hmm. not exactly a, you know, there, no not a hard thing whistles. to do, Chip. Yeah. <laughs> not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah. There are no slide whistles here in my, dis- in, in my uh, assessment of the season. One of the things that I struggled with in season seven was. There was a metric buttload of continuity really rising up, and the story felt like it was on the verge of getting bogged down in the show's mythology. Season 8, I get the feeling like they just said, you know, this is our last season, we're throwing up the white flag, we're just diving in, we're all in on the show's mythology. That actually worked for me a little bit better than it did the previous season because it just sort of went, it, it did go all in. It, there, it, there was no halvesies about it. This is a season that is not trying to get you to stick around for a ninth season because there isn't going to be one. But the other thing that, and I think this gets to some of uh, Shannon's criticisms as well, I think I got from season eight everything that I had been coming to Voltron for in the previous seven seasons. What I didn't get was anything more than that. I got a big gonzo giant robot story with a lot of deep plot and a lot of drama and sort of epic vistas and stuff like that. But especially towards the end of the season, really the only characters that the story felt like it was about to me were Allura and Anerva. And everybody else becomes mm-hmm. a, a bit of a supporting I, character. I think they suffered a little bit from that that classic... Well, classic blunder. Is that too much to say? Um, uh, Don't start a land war in Asia. (laughs) Exactly. 
uh, of escalation <laughs> to a certain extent, right, right? Right. Because we we had to raise the stakes when it felt like, all right, we're not going to finish season seven. In some ways, seemed like a good opportunity. Like, oh, we you know we're going to fight for Earth. Earth is our home. Earth is the thing that we care about. We have connections here. We have family here. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a really strong build and climax that you can have for that. And so season eight fell prey to that issue of. Well, how do we raise the stakes? And it's what well, we have. Yeah, how yeah, do well, we at, the, at the end yeah. of season seven, at the end of season seven, it was kind of like, oh, okay. Well, we uh, finished all the main. Co- Wait, now what? Now what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, what's our what's our next well, thing? So I think that's an issue because it, it it meant that they had to create a lot of plot and spool it out over the course of a single season, rather than building to that. And and there are things. I probably like Chip. I'm probably also a little more positive about this season, though I'm not as, I think, deeply invested as, as a lot of people in this. Like, I enjoy the show, but it's not a show that I, like, I always dissect, like, really, really deeply. Um, but, yeah, sort of thinking about the structure of it, like, I, I do agree that there's a lot of stuff crammed into into these 13 episodes at the end that is almost not building as much off all of our previous seasons. There's an interesting like two two sides of things where a, a couple of people have touched on the fact that this season is racing toward checking off plot points and finishing out the story but then we have these diversions to fleshing out more of the enormous expansive supporting cast that we then completely drop and then never see again. <laughs> And if we were building up those supporting cast members for a fully telegraphed spinoff show, that would have made more sense. And they don't even necessarily feel like filler. Like it's it's confusing um, to to the point that it's it's almost like maybe they thought they had less episodes to play with at the outset, or they realized they had a lot more stuff to tie off than they thought they had. I I don't know. Certainly, they wound up with way too many plot threads, way too many characters, way too much juggling. And some of the things that they chose to tie up and bring back seem really odd choices or choices because they could do it in 30 seconds. Like, hey, let's just show what happened to this character real fast. Things like that, instead of answering some of the bigger things that I think are still left and we don't know. I noticed a couple of instances of what I'm going to call backwards storytelling. And it's not that they haven't done backwards flashback things like that. Uh, we had the entire two-parter in Season 7, The Last Stand, to show what had happened to Earth while Voltron was caught in a you know sudden three-year skip forward. But things like we had in Season 7, the episode where we find out that this druid has, been tar- has decided to target the Blades, and especially Keith for some unknown cryptic reason, calls him a traitor, you know, and Keith winds up killing him and and, uh, getting out of that. And then the only thing in season eight that even touches on that, because that was like an almost entire episode, is one tiny scene in the second episode of season eight, where this random druid tries to tell Hagar slash Onerva, you know, something she needs to know. And that's the point where she says, you know what, I'm done with you guys. I'm going with the Altaians. Bye. And you don't even know it's the same druid unless you're watching the subtitles to get his name. Yeah, I didn't get that it was the same guy. It's the same guy. I didn't remember that first episode. Right. And (laughs) that's it. And and we're shown, like, that's the beginning of his obsession, but that's a really unsatisfying way to deal with that. A bigger example is Lotor. I really don't see why they had to go so deeply into Lotor's background 
showing what made him the the tragic, torn character he was back in seasons five and six, if there's nothing that's going to change it. There's nothing we can do about it now. The poor guy is dead. He made the wrong decision a couple of times. He let the quintessence field get him. It was back and forth. I loved his writing in that middle arc because it was always a seesaw. Which side's he going to fall on? It was fascinating. For a lot of people, a lot of fans who really, really liked that character and wanted to see him redeemed, to see that, yeah, there were a whole lot of reasons for him to feel this way, and there's nothing that can be done about it. All we get is one glimpse of this molten corpse melted into the pilot seat of the mech. That really sat wrong with me. And th- that's time that if they had not gone back and done that, that they could have smoothed out season eight's plot better, added things to it, given us more of the main characters, etc. A question that a lot of people had, myself included, at the end of season seven was what they were going to do with Lotor. Was he really dead? What the deal with Lotor was? And they had to close that loop somehow, for one. But I, I feel like even even with him being gone and doing the kind of Norman Bates reversal reveal, where you know he's he's dead, he's toast, he's you know not coming back. I don't think that makes the additional bits of Lotor backstory that we get a waste because so much of season eight is so heavily leaning on Unerva. No matter how you slice it, the broken nature of her son is part of you know what how how we close the loop with our remaining big bad, where it's part of her development is whether whether it's something that she had control over or not him being her son is a part of of who she is can she be redeemed is she going to come around how does his backstory influence who she has become even though you know we've gotten a fair amount of backstory on her up to this point i didn't take it so much as as it being a, a waste of storytelling time but it was i i find myself grasping for words in in a lot of these cases uh where I just I I felt lost more often than I expected to, and I ended up being I think much more positive on this season than Shannon did, and much more positive than a lot of people did. And you know we can get into shipping wars and all that kind of stuff later. Um, <laughs> you know the, the 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 various disappointments of expectations that are out there that a lot of people had. I I went into the season trying to go into it as open-minded as possible because I had no idea where they were going with any of this stuff. And even though there were there were bits that ended up making me uh, feel lost where I thought I had a pretty good grasp at some of the weeds uh, within, the, within the, the continuity and the canon of the show, on the whole, trying to nail it to whether they stuck the landing on the whole thing or not, as unwieldy of a giant robeast of a thing as this is, it's difficult for me to classify it one way or another there because that is so heavily wrapped up into expectations because they've created such a big sprawling cast of characters and pile of narrative threads where no two people are going to watch this show precisely the same way. And there'll be nuances in things that, you know, we're glad that they did in season eight that other people absolutely cannot stand and things that some people think were completely disposable that other people um, you know, found to be some of the more solid closing of loops, as it were. They really did create a monster uh, <laughs> in terms of how much stuff there was. I mean, I, to an extent, I agree with you because I quite liked the overall plot, the overall big bad plot of this season. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of Anova trying to get back to happier times, 
for the love of her lost son and all that. You know, and there are many ways this season could have gone, as you say. And I think that this was as good an arc as any, but my problems with it are with the execution of that plot. And, you know, unfortunately, I think there were quite a few of those problems. And the thing is that, so here's my, here's my little rant, watching this from the point of view of a creator, both about the season and about the reaction and to the if season. If I can just say for reference, Anthony, as a creator who has written a gigantic, massive, uh, like four-volume oh, tome I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, kind of story. I'm, ge- I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm, ju- I'm, so, just, I'm just your hype man. That's all I am. Endings are hard. It's an old cliche, but it's true. Endings are hard. And yeah, I was disappointed with this season. There were some lovely individual bits. There were some great uh, character moments and scenes, you know, that you could pick out and go, that was really nice. But it was overall, I felt, let down by poor plotting. And that final interminable battle just just had me throwing my hands up in despair. Most of the time, because my it reminded me of like the last two volumes of Lone Wolf and Cub, but not in a good way. But I want to say, I have enormous sympathy for Joaquim de Santos and Laura Montgomery, the mm-hmm. the showrunners. I don't know them. I should point out, I don't know them. I've never met them. Uh, to be honest, I'm not even all that familiar with their previous work. I'm sure most of you have probably seen way more of their other work than I have. But what I do know, as Moises just alluded to, is that maintaining an ongoing long form episodic story that's hard that's hard man mm-hmm. uh, and to pull off an ending that satisfies even most of the audience of that kind of story is you know harder yet again and let's not forget they and others involved in the show were always fairly upfront that voltron has always had a certain amount of what you might call editorial interference from up top mm-hmm. because of you know the need to the need to sell toys the fact that it is remains ostensibly aimed at children you know, there's been corporate resistance to some of the more modern social issues that they've tried to tackle, which we've talked about before. But all of that said, and this is where, you know, you've really got to, we don't know what happened on this production. Who had the final say? We don't know what they argued over. And the reason I want to emphasize that is, you know, I've, like all of us, I have seen some of the online fandom complaints and drama about the show. And a lot of it assumes certain things about how media and entertainment like this is made that simply are not true. And I say, I find myself saying this so often. Some of the stuff I've read has been absurdly off base. Like I saw one apparently prominent person involved in the fandom claim that they had the answer. Eureka! They knew why the show was terrible. And it was because the, sh- the episodes had different writers rather than a single writer all the way through. <laughs> which completely ignores how TV is made. And also ignores the fact that, yeah, as I say, two of the most prominent writers on this season actually have been on it for many seasons going back. And second, if you think that these writers go off and just type out a script without talking to anyone first, (laughs) and then they come back with something that must be filmed without any changes, that's not how any of this works. And and that's I think it's important to bear that in mind when we're talking about stuff. We're, We're saying they. They did this. They did that. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And... You know, of course, we're talking about the sort of the creative group as a whole, because the truth is that we don't know who made a lot of these decisions. We don't know whether the writers were hampered by corporate interference. We don't know whether corporate rescued a complete mess of a story, because believe it or not, that does happen. You know, the the studio isn't always the bad guy. And sometimes they actually have good ideas and rescue something that would otherwise be a horrible mess. And unless you were in the room... When those decisions were made, then you don't know either, and neither do any of us. So, 
you know, let's all just kind of, I just want everyone to bear that in mind. I know we all have that, I hope anyway, you know, we all sort of bear that kind of thing in mind. But if anybody out there is listening to this, you know, please just bear that in mind when you're talking about something like a TV show, which is so collaborative and there are so many people involved in every step. You can't lay the blame or credit at the feet of one person. It was, it was, in any of it, this. it was me. Sorry, guys. I, I come clean. Me. I screwed everything up. I'll, I'll just go. Anyway, That's the Dan. true Caledonian gamut. Uh, Ran, yeah. so, Rant over. So I don't want to... Wait, I don't but wanna, one thing uh, One thing I will say that I really liked was the Knights of Light. Too. Yes. I was going to oh say that. That was the highlight. Too. I think that was... Yeah. That was the, the highlight of the season for of me. The, so yeah. I want to come back to that uh, two-parter, but uh, I do want to zero in on one thing that you said there, Anthony. You, you said that the final battles in the last uh, two episodes were just so interminable for you. Anthony, I'm not sure that you're aware, but Voltron is a series about giant robots fighting each other. How could I've you have loved... a problem with but a finale that is not loved... even just hang on, hang episodes, on, hang on. Like three or four. I, I've, got oh. a, I've got this it, it brilliant... Was, it was the back half of the entire yeah. season. Yeah. You aren't letting me get... You aren't letting me <laughs> deliver my beautiful line Sorry, here, which on. is, <laughs> Anthony, how can you reject a finale that involves giant robots that are 20 times bigger by volume slugging it out with <laughs> with 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 a with a piloting crew of hundreds and hundreds of people that completely entirely disappear once the uh ro- giant robots merge oh don't even get me started yeah. on Voltron merging with atlas that <laughs> no no, that was a bad idea. I well, I, that, I liked that, but that, I'm, I'm weird like that. That was the one time binging this entire thing, the minute it dropped, because I could not stay away from social media. I got up at 3 a.m. to watch. I had the subtitles on so I wouldn't wake up the family. That was the only time I punched the air. And we'll circle back to this because Shiro was finally back with the team. And that was oh, the okay, only way they true. could yeah. do it. All right. But I we'll see that later. you want them to sell any of these beautiful toys. <laughs> toys. To- exactly, yes. <laughs> the only I, toys I, I, I want uh, are good action figures. I'm glad I'm glad that was kind of the the exception of of dipping into Dragon Ball Z territory <laughs> of the interminable <laughs> the okay. power levels over 60 million. <laughs> oh yeah. Of a oh no, we're overloading. So, <laughs> you know. So uh, come on, knights let's have a love in. Knights of Light. Yes. I really appreciated it. That was great, wasn't it? Seeing the old with the new. Yeah, I was I not expecting exactly. We we had our origin episode way back at the end of season three. I was not expecting to see those characters again. That was genuinely thrilling to see the old generation and the new generation come together and um, take out that stage of the dungeon. Why did I not realize that those silhouettes were the old paladins? Why am I so slow? Because you don't rewatch the seasons obsessively like I do. <laughs> I didn't get it until they revealed it in the show either. Don't worry, Chip. Thank you. I love that the I actually like a little character design point. I like that the uniforms, the paladin suits for the old generation mm-hmm. are, if not the same as the old show, much closer. They're they have the uh, like little diamond thing on their helmets, yeah, mm-hmm. which is like classic Voltron. I enjoy it. Like it's subtle. They're, the uniforms are little largely things. the same, but there are a couple yeah, little the- tweaks here and there. Going back to the first episode of the season, um, having Pidge cosplay as 1984 Pidge just almost <laughs> killed me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> almost absolutely killed me. Some of the 
funniest stuff that Bex Taylor-Klaus got to do in this whole show. Imitating the old voice actor, Bex Taylor-Klaus is a national treasure. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think I may be the only person on this panel who didn't, who never saw the old Voltron, but even I, yeah, thought that was a brilliant, mm-hmm. just a, a stroke of genius, loved it. Yeah, that was that was another high point. The first episode really, really had me hoping and going in. Lauren Montgomery did a great job incorporating these callbacks to Defenders of the Universe. We got finally this critical mass of female characters to do the classic, we're all going to go shopping thing. I mean, you know, yes, it's silly, but it's a lot of fun. And of course, then the other half is, you know, Allura and Lance finally getting together after this amazing slow journey to the point where first he's too busy hitting on her and then he starts to mature. Then he figures out, okay, this really means something. And, you know, she goes through her side deal with Lotor and then comes back to see Lance in a new light. And I really liked um, most of that episode. I liked the development of Lance over the arc of the entire series, where mm-hmm. usually there's the total clawed, you know, doofus Andy Samberg type character that suddenly the cute girl is into. And, and Lance actually grows as a human being and right. and actually improves and it's not it's not day to night it's it is a gradual progression and that whole that whole thing is is is, is so totally earned to the point that it's an example of something that I w- going into this season I didn't know that they had earned it for me but over the course of season 8 yeah they they totally earned it and mm-hmm. And it's where coming back again to, you know, there were bits where I got lost. There were things that felt a little shaggy. I ended up being pretty overall positive on the season because I'm amazed that they that I'm amazed that they landed it as well as they did, because, holy God, this could have been an insane mess. Oh, it could have been even worse. It, it, no could, yeah. it can always be worse, guys. It can always, yeah, it can, look, always, it can be, always worse. be worse. Yeah, I, I agree with Moises's point. Like, I think uh, I really enjoy Lance's one of my favorites of the paladins probably even though he is such a clod early on but he's a you know he he grows on you he is i moises is totally right like over the course of eight seasons and this is the kind of thing you can do in a show that runs for eight seasons even if it's only two and a half years largely produced at once really take a character and get a chance to have them substantively change over mm-hmm. the course of an entire show through his interactions with every other mm-hmm. you know member of his team uh and other characters as well and and I really like that they they developed a mature relationship for her for him and Allura it it really helps flesh out both of their characters and give them sort of an added dimension to work with um because you know it sort of takes a character like Allura. Allura is a character who has so much weighing on her for the first several seasons, right? Like she's the one of the last mm-hmm. Altaeans. She is the like power of the Castle of Lions and all this. Like, right? That's a lot of stuff to like have on your shoulders throughout this, and it gives her an opportunity in that episode, especially to have her be a person with very like everyday concerns, like showing up at a date. You know, and going to eat dinner with her her potential boyfriend's family. Like, it's nice to get a moment with some of these characters that is dramatic, has dramatic, like, sort of character weight to it, but isn't about saving the entire universe. That really helps flesh out these characters and make them much more lovable and three dimensional to me. Yeah, and I'm the same way. The first season, Lance was my least favorite character. 
I, I did not like him. I resented the screen time he got because he annoyed me so badly. He was a Ron Weasley <laughs> for you, wasn't he? He was totally the Ron Weasley character. And yeah, I, yeah that's to- different fandom. Sorry. But you know, now, Shannon, razzle-dazzle. <laughs> but <laughs> starting late season three, I started seeing glimpses of, okay, he's starting to get it. He is starting to figure it out. And then by seasons five and six, when he's doing things that are, you know, smart and good and, you know, things and, you know, I'm finally happy for him. And, you know, that just kept going till we get to this point where, yes, he's a full-fledged member of the team. He is making responsible decisions. He has figured out what it means to be the supportive boyfriend and not just get the girl. And it goes on from there. (laughs) And that's a little bit of the reason that the apparent decision over Allura makes me so furious. Um, I don't know if we want to move to that yet or not, if you guys have more to say before we get there, but that is something I'm going to want to talk about. Yeah, if I could sort of set the stage for that a little bit. I made the assertion at the top of the podcast that uh, I felt like this uh, season, and especially the last half of it, it's kind of Allura's story, and the other characters don't drive the story nearly as much. And I wanted to see if y'all agreed with me on that and how you felt about the ending of it. Because in the end, it all comes down to Allura making decisions about how to deal with Anerva. She puts herself in a risky position. She drives the team to go after Hanerva. And in the end, she sacrifices herself for the good of the universe. So that's an awful lot. So let's talk about the Allura plot. I'm kind of surprised, like, every subsequent season, I kept expecting someone to bite the dust, (laughs) right? Like, and, you know, I understand this is primarily a show, you know, about our core, you know, five and six characters, but, you know, that's a very common thing to do in a late run of a season is, like, let's, let's, you know, demonstrate that there are stakes by killing someone off. And they really I mean, held they'd, off. Are, they'd already killed Shiro something like three times. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and they'd originally intended, they'd originally intended for Shiro to be literally killed off. I had yeah. assumed, yeah, I, I kept being surprised because, you know, after the whole, like, you know, switching the lion pilots and stuff like that, I kind of assumed, like, oh, well, you know, that character maybe has, has run his arc. But I love Shiro, so I'm not going to complain too much about that. I think... What I do, uh, let me start with what I like about the Allura plot. Um, I think I enjoy that the decision at the end is hers and that she comes to the decision of wanting to redeem Anerva to a certain point. Could have been a very different outcome. It could have, and I think that would have been less nuanced and less complex. So I, I enjoy that it, it is a decision that she makes that her team is upset about but isn't like constantly trying to talk her out of a decision that she's made. And I know that won't necessarily sit well with everyone. That's fine. But it was something that I appreciated that she got to do that and that there was a time for her to like get her goodbyes in with each of the team members. Because I actually thought that that scene is a very touching scene. Uh, and I like how they went through each of the characters to sort of their, <sighs> exemplify the different relationships she had with all of them. I, I really appreciated that. Touching, um, touching on both that and and what uh, what what you were saying about Shiro for a second, where he was, uh, you know, apparently intended to originally just be killed off, but they just couldn't kill him off. The thing that felt unique and different here is that 
usually it is the Shiro type character in a show like this that makes the ultimate sacrifice. And mm-hmm. that is just a trope of squad team, you know, animated hero shows. And I honestly cannot think of a time when a woman of color has been the central hero of a show to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of existence and uh, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas I can understand people being of the opinion that, well, you know, how dare you, you know, she's the one woman of color in the main cast. She didn't get fridged. She didn't get just like killed off to motivate her boyfriend. Um, Exactly. She basically got to, instead of be Princess Zelda, be Link at the end of The Legend of Zelda and be the one to, you know, go take the sword and plunge it into the giant pig monster, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, (laughs) That's true. But in the end, though, she is the one person of color who doesn't make it out of the series. Yeah. And I agree with the fact that, yes, it's her decision and that is good. And Moises is right that how often do we see a person of color, especially a woman of color, turn out to be the central character in a team? Not very often. My problem with that ending was more just that it was not good. Uh, Like, regardless of whether or not it was her choice. Like, I've always had a bit of a problem with Return of the Jedi. I love Star Wars. But in Jedi, at least Vader still dies. It's his own son who, quote unquote, redeems him. and. Luke isn't required to actually sacrifice himself to do so. This was none of those things. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a. It felt like a terrible lesson. Like you can be so evil that you kill literally billions of people for ten thousand years, but if you say sorry just before you're about to be executed, suddenly it's all right. Don't worry about it. We'll put the universe back to rights. I just Thank like you. no. You can't. thank it's a you. Terrible. Yeah. Well, yeah, my my reading on yes. that is they needed her to be able to do that. So they had you know, the lions. The lions right. were another option. That's my problem. Is throughout this entire series, we have had stakes going up and stakes going up, but there has always been at least a trading of ideas. What can we do? What can we possibly figure out up to the point where they wind up sacrificing the castle? I mean, before they wind up doing that, they go through steps. They try to figure out. Is there anything else we can do? And here, yes, well, there's if they not hadn't even... sidelined Karan in this last season so much, yeah. maybe, you know, that would have helped. Yeah, that's the other thing. She didn't get to say goodbye to Karan. And that's the other thing. She, this is the one character, yes, principal character, woman of color. And she has sacrificed throughout this entire series. She lost her planet. She lost the last connection she had to her father in that artificial intelligence. She kept losing things over and over and over again to the point where she sacrifices her freaking crown to help Shiro. And the thanks she gets is that she has to turn around and say, nope, I've got to, you know, go away and fix all of this. And I apparently can never see you all again. It really, really, really bothered me. All of the online chatter friends circles that I have who have children who watch this show, universally, the kids were upset and angry, and tearful, and hated that outcome. This did not feel like a triumph. Having to lose Allura like that robbed any sense of triumph in the success of saving all the universes. And I think that's one of the reasons that this last part of the season sits so poorly with me. I feel like it should have ended on a triumphant note of some way, even if it meant losing a couple of the team members, even like I said, those 
uh, lions are made of this trans-reality material comet stuff. You know, give those to Anerva. Allura tells her real fast what to do, and that's solved. I mean, yeah, that takes away the toy aspect, which is, of course, why that was not an option. But, <laughs> but yeah, it really bothers me because we already had several tragedy arcs in this series. There's Anerva's tragedy arc where she lets her scientific inquiry get the better of her, and that leads to her downfall and uh, turning into Hagar. Zarkon's downfall is he loves her too much and tries, you know, risks everything to save her and then winds up condemning himself and her to the quintessence madness. I already mentioned Lotor's tragedy arc. Why does Lalora have to have one too? We've had enough. Yeah, so- my, my, my thing is in Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, they did a lot of really heavily Buddhist stuff. And if this was an outgrowth of that, it wasn't remotely as well formed in conception as it was there in terms of attaining balance and, uh, you know, rejecting the notion of everybody has to make it out alive and sacrifices have to be made to achieve balance and so on and so forth. I think that like, was my issue with it. Like I said, it was the, me, about the just execution. Let me finish. Just, Go on. Exactly. That, that, that's exactly what it is. Like the, the I, I, you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm of two minds about it where... I feel like Allura not being allowed to make that sacrifice is like saying, I'm sorry, a woman of color can't do that. And so I would have had a problem with it if they had just put her in this invincibility bubble and she'd been untouchable. But to go directly to Shannon's point, I don't feel like they earned this. Um, right. Where I, like I, I, they, they did not sell me on why it was necessary not because I, frankly, you know, uh, go ahead and put it out there on the internet. I don't care about the kids. I don't care. I don't care that kids are traumatized by a thing. Kids got to be traumatized. That's what by I was going to say. I have no uh, problem with kids being upset by things like this. Some of my greatest memories of cartoons and kid shows from when I was a kid are the ones that upset me and were tragic it, and sad. I have no problem with that. Snoopy come home wrecked me, folks. Anthony, let me let me tell you about about how how many therapists I've talked to about Optimus Prime dying. <laughs> <laughs> I was As thinking more about Captain Carter in Starfleet, but yeah, just oh God. but execute it properly, you know, or like you say, earn it. And this just, I don't know, didn't feel earned to me. One thing that the series has always fallen back on, and I'd say it's a weakness of the series, but it's also this this is a Gonzo series with planets that cannot exist in normal human physics, as Anthony mentioned last time. This series relies so much on. Oh, wait, the lion showed me how to create a new weapon. Oh, wait, there's this new energy. Oh, wait, there's this new thing. So... Well, that was the entire final battle. <laughs> exactly. And and right. so and, and so there's this hand wavy that comes in that says that Allura is the one who has to sacrifice herself. And I think I'm where Moises is, is that it's not what happened. It's the fact that the heavy lifting wasn't done to make it an earned moment. And on the other side... This is something that I am going to put it out there. I do think whether it was at the direction of DreamWorks or World Entertainment Productions, without those little epilogue cards, there is the potential opening that Alora might be able to return. If you stop with uh, the team watching the lions leave, and then you go past the credits, there is an ending shot of the lions flying into the night sky, and you yeah. see an outline of an Alora. And in that last shot, Lance's uh, new little Altaian marks are glowing to signify that maybe there is a connection being made. So it was open to interpretation that 
if those of you who felt that Alora was dead and gone, fine. Those of you who did not want Alora to be dead, you could look at it as there's a possibility that she might have been able to return, that things have been fixed, that it was now possibility that she could come back. And it's those epilogue end cards that, for a couple of reasons, I think, got shoved in after the fact that, you know, without those, I would feel a lot better about a lot of this season. Those title cards at the end, I don't know that it's fair to say that they were shoved in at the end outside of just speculating. You know, they do feel tacked on, but in terms of the actual like production reason to do it, I don't think that those were put on there to seal Allura's fate and say that, no. you know, the and and the 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 problem is because of how they don't match stylistically with literally the way they did everything else right. in the show. Yeah. Um it's it's what causes exactly that kind of uh, a Yiddish word is the best thing I can think of, Surus, among and across all of fandom, where it's wait a minute, this doesn't fit with any of the stuff that they had done before. Right. Why are they doing this? To be fair, one of the things that I do like about the ending is that for a show that had so much of a struggle about even acknowledging an LGBT main character, the fact that feel about who he ended up with, as you may, the fact that we end the show with Shiro kissing another man on the mouth, which was something that everybody was pretty much convinced that DreamWorks and Netflix were not going to allow them to do anything even approaching that beyond the small amount of stuff that they did in his backstory. I didn't love the way that, that it was, that that it was put in there and put together, but it's again, it, it's, it, it kind of goes back to just the way that I feel about all of season eight, where there are things that I really like about it, and then they're all directly glued to stuff that just doesn't really necessarily work for me. Okay. The Shiro card is the other reason that I think those things were shoved in. For me, that turns Shiro's entire character into a token when he wasn't before. When they introduced his sexuality in season seven, it was done beautifully. There was this conversation with his significant other, a mature relationship that ran into its problems and therefore could not happen anymore. Adam could have been Adele and nothing would have changed about that conversation. It was not the defining characteristic of Shiro. It was just something else about him. And then. Season eight happens, and Shiro is pretty much divided from everybody on the team. There are so few interactions of any kind that aren't barking orders or making plans. I mean, especially, and, you know, and yes, Keith is the prime example. He and Keith, their friendship had been a backbone of this series, and suddenly they can't even stand more than five feet from each other. It's barely evident, um, yeah. Yeah, they, they and, it's, and, and it's the same with the rest of the main cast. And and if yeah. they had if they had set that up at the end of season seven, that he's going to go into the background a bit, it wouldn't have felt as weird. And they didn't. I mean, season seven was miraculous in the fact that even though he's no longer in a lion, he's still got a vital part to play in the series. And season eight erased that. I mean, you know, it pretty much neutered him. I mean, and the kind of messages that once you've revealed this character to be gay, oh, sh shoot, we've got to keep him over here and out of the way. And if they had not put those end cards in, again, the fact that he is a gay man is just the fact that he's a gay man and it's not any bigger or smaller aspect of his character. But they did not earn 
him marrying random bridge crew member number three. And retiring. They totally did not earn a, a man who left Adam because he felt that he had to go and fight. He, you mm -hmm. know, he left the guy that he loved before because of his devotion to... To fighting, to making to, things to, right. To being a soldier yeah. and doing the right thing. Well, and then the whole point then that he, yeah. get, he achieves yeah, that? Yeah, the, fight, like, the fighting's me, over. Yeah. The fighting's over and he leaves that life behind and he can actually be he happy. He wouldn't have. I don't see it. I don't uh, see that. I, there's nothing the I disagree on that point. I, I violently disagree. Yeah, I'm with okay. Moises on this but, one. I, I do think that they, I, I think that that was a nice end cap for his character. And I understand uh -huh. the concerns about it, but I, I think there are a lot of, you know, we've discussed some of the problems with this uh, season as a whole. And I think it is a symptom rather than a cause that his his disconnection from the rest of the crew because we've talked about most of these characters don't get a lot of time with each other in this season mm -hmm. so i don't think he's necessarily treated worse it is the fact that all of this season feels a little disjointed in terms of letting these characters get together added to that the fact that having him physically displaced from being in voltron makes it that much harder when you've got a, a series a season that features so prominently like we're going to have voltron do this right like I, they didn't want to necessarily like have him like in like a like a like a tow carrier like being towed around by voltron to have him as part of the team and so i feel like they worked themselves into a box by having him separated but I don't necessarily, and, and maybe this is my privileged position talking about this, I, I did not see it as necessarily a, a castigation of who he was or anything about that so much as on par with a lot of the other misplaced execution of this season. But I do agree. I, I, liked, I like the end result of it. I understand that there are people like who are displeased with that. But, I, you know, somebody should get to retire happily, frankly. And I, and I don't see why not, not him. Lance not his farm, what do you mean? My disagreement <laughs> with the the allegation of tokenism is that for once, a central gay character doesn't get buried with the gays. He gets a version of a happy ending. It may not be the happy ending that everybody within fandom is pleased with. But even though he gets sidelined for much of the season, I think that's partly a result of they I, I'm amazed that they they found as much to do with him, like Dan said, yeah. once they cut him out of the main crew in the first place, you would effectively have been supporting two completely separate shows. And for me, it would have been massively worse if they had killed him off. And it, it I okay, but going they didn't kill him. Off. I mean, they killed him once. They weren't going to kill him again. Right. But he's not sorry after all. Okay. For yeah. me, think about okay, a movie like Tangled. You go through Tangled, you go through Rapunzel and Flynn, going through their adventures, getting closer, getting to know each other. They save each other, things like that. And then she's reunited with her parents. And then we get an end cap saying, oh, her parents decided that for political reasons, they needed to marry her off to the prince in the next county. Sorry. That would have had people rioting. That is not how you do a story with characters that people care about. And to shove Shiro off onto this random character that we didn't, we couldn't even, again, his name's never spoken. No, the he, guy's he had like three lines spoken. in the entire season. He it's had, ridiculous. Yeah, like maybe three lines in the season. You don't know his name unless you watch the subtitles. And in the audio narration for the visually impaired, at the beginning when this show was first released, they called him Adam in the end cap. Oh. Okay. They called him Adam. You know, they fixed that now. But there's video out there, people who downloaded and, and caught clips. So just it feels like a hugely clumsy attempt 
to grab the woke points for a character that didn't need them. I, I, They'd I feel already like, done their work. I, I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like accusing them of trying to grab woke points is going a bit overboard on accusing creatives of something that I don't believe that they did. Could they have given Shiro and bridge crew member number 17 an actual developed story? I mean, they couldn't do it to the scale of what they gave Lance and Allura because they had the entire right. show to do that. I'm not saying that they couldn't have done better. I'm saying that it is on the last one of these that we did. I, I was one of the two of us that was, mm-hmm. that was talking about looking at this connection between Shiro and Keith, that we thought that there was something there and oh, there, there, def- I, there, I there definitely was, there definitely was just, please let me finish. There, there was that mentor mentee relationship. And uh, those of us who ship that pairing, like we can want that all day and all night. And, the space between the dialogue that I find the stuff that, you know, the relationships that I see, the ships, the, you know, stuff that I imagine in the back of my head, maybe they tried to make something work and it just didn't work. Or it was something that was, that was coming from one direction and not the other, but we didn't get to see any of that. And whatever we want to imagine about what the possibility and potential of that relationship was, we're placing it on the show saying that that was the intent of the writers from the very beginning to put these characters together. And then we get into like conspiracy theory land, trying to, trying to decide what the writers were and were not prevented to do reading tea leaves and chicken bones. And it's, it's something that it's a very slippery slope for me because I've had, I've, I've had work of my own. I think other writers have, have had work of their own, have people tell them this is what was in your writing. This is what was in your intent from the very beginning. And as much as I wanted to see that relationship flower and flourish, the fact that it didn't, I look, it's, it's one of a million times that that's happened for me with fiction where things haven't turned out the way that I wanted to see them. Okay. So I'm talking about two different things as far as Shiro's character versus shipping issues. I feel Shiro's character was done a disservice that if they were going to end him in a gay relation in a relationship with another man, they didn't earn it by throwing that little end cap on. Yeah, it they, they could have they could have brought him. back one less robeast or or Galran general or something. Okay. The other thing is that I think we have there is enough out there as far as interviews with Joaquin dos Santos and Laura Montgomery to show that at the very least I think they meant to leave it open ended if again if you take out those end caps the last shot includes a shot of just Shiro and Keith together same same screen looking up as the lions go away without saying anything further i i know i crowed and hoped that you know pie in the sky wished that they were going to kiss this season when we did our season 7 recap and yes that was the shipper in me talking i truly did not expect that they would be able to go that far what I did not expect was for them to tear it down. And I feel like that's what they did between the complete absence of interactions in season eight and then throwing that epilogue in there. I, I just can't I can't quite figure out. And maybe this is me not being like super up on the fandom. I just I can't see the motive for that other than just like that seems weird and spiteful in a way that nothing else about this show really seems to me. Well, so- a lot of DreamWorks that. <laughs> A lot of DreamWorks shows and movies seem to ration the LGBT. It's like only one character and no more. So I guess I mean I, I for me it did not bother as much mainly because I I guess I never I, for me you know I, Moises I think exemplifies a lot of my feeling on that subject which is 
you know, it's hard to say exactly what the creators have in mind if it's not on the page or the screen. And, you know, we all bring our own interpretations to things. And, you know, that's fine. We have that ability to have our headcanon. We have our fan fiction, other ways to let that out. But ultimately, a creator is going to tell the story they want to tell. And, you know, even if you dislike it, I think you have to sort of be like, well, that's their story. They told it the way they wanted to. And so I guess I don't I don't mind the end result. Yeah, I agree with a lot of you that if they wanted to have Shiro end up in a happy relationship we probably could have spent some time building that over the course of the season. And there are definitely other things that could have got, fallen by the wayside and reasons for that. That's all speculation. I can't speak to that, but I am not opposed to the idea of him having a happy ending or a marriage with, even if it's with a character that we don't know at all. I, I think that there's still something to be said for his character uh, and the, the end result of it. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thorny issue on a more positive note. Uh, somebody mentioned, and I wanted to highlight, because this was the one part of the series that actually had me choking up, was that final scene where the lions leave. Uh, because that was the one scene that I thought was handled perfectly. Like, you know, the, the minimal dialogue. No, there was no heavy-handed explanation. There was no hammering you over the head with what's happening. Just, you know, because you, you just knew. You understood instinctively. Oh. Oh, they're going. Uh, and mm -hmm. that actually did have me choking up. I absolutely loved that part. I thought part it was of a, me wonders, that was a fitting end, I thought. Part yeah. of me wonders if that was an if that was one of those... Oftentimes when you write a story, you kind of have your like last shot or your ending in mind. And I felt like... And, and you kind of fixate right. on like what are the things you mm -hmm. need to do to get to that point. And that, mm -hmm. that's part of what makes me think maybe to, to Shannon's point earlier about like why couldn't they have sacrificed the lions, which I think would have been a perfectly fine ending. Part of me mm -hmm. wonders if they were just like, oh, but then we can't get this great shot at the end that we really want and have been mm -hmm. building towards all this time. So again, sometimes you sort of write yourself into a box creatively. Oh, but Dan, 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 I, I can tell you exactly which shot that they have been, that they were moving up towards. I can tell you exactly what they were building towards for eight seasons. Oh, God. I can tell you exactly who Dear, they were building and it, and it does, yeah. does, in fact, require those ending title cards to get this shot. They I got my vehicle Voltron back, yeah. people. Uh, we should have guessed. <laughs> I, I knew it was going to be giant robot related. There was no question in my mind. <laughs> Chip well, has been spending these recaps for eight seasons, wanting Vehicle Voltron to show up, and they finally gave it to him well, I'm after hoping the that, show was basically over. Well, I'm hoping that we might get a spin-off with the MFE pilots doing Vehicle never Voltron. Never. Imagine? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that I be think, good? I think that a spin-off with the MFE pilots is more likely than the um than than the well, vehicle they can Voltron incorporate, thing. I mean the Yeah, they can incorporate some vehicle Voltron in that, that way potentially. Yeah. But it's easier if they use their original smush, characters. Exactly. Smush them together. Exactly. Uh my only disappointment with that is that uh my spec script that I wrote for intro uh for introducing <laughs> a vehicle Voltron thing is Fan completely pick. invalidated now. It's fanfic. It's not yeah. invalid. It's fanfic. We have been going for more than an hour on this, and we've talked about some of the highlights and some of the lowlights of the last season. I wanted to take a moment and um, just sort of get some final assessments of either favorite moments from this season that we haven't touched on yet, or just your final evaluation of Voltron Legendary Defender. Uh, yeah, I'll wrap up my thoughts on the whole show. I, I think 
despite the the many frustrations and issues that we have expressed with some of the season uh overall i i do love the show i think so much of it is about the the you know to get all trite and uh, uh cliched about it so much of it is about the journey to get where we went that like i wouldn't want to necessarily you know discount that because of a landing that did not get stuck perfectly uh overall i don't you know it's not i've watched shows or read books that i got to the end and was like uh i wasted a whole bunch of time and i'll throw them across the room (laughs) for me this wasn't this there was still so much of of this show to love going back to the very early seasons that i i feel that i enjoyed my time with these characters and I really like, you know, there are a lot of episodes uh, that sort of stand out for me over the course of the the series. And even if this, you know, ended on kind of a, a sobering note, I mean, hey, I watched five seasons of The Wire. And if you can get from season four of The Wire to season five of The Wire and not be like, Ugh, you know, you can make it through eight seasons of Voltron. That's all I'm saying. So on the whole, I, I'm still ve- feeling very positive about the whole thing. And, and, you know, maybe I'll go back and revisit it someday or maybe there'll be a spinoff. I feel like if it it seemed to be popular enough that it merited one, though then again, after the reception of that last season, maybe some people don't want to be involved in that now. I think I'd largely agree with that. I mean, you know, the ending is unfortunately how most people are going to remember your story. That's why it's so important to stick the landing. Uh, And, you know, I do think this was a weaker season than the rest of the show, but the rest of the show leading up to it was very, very good indeed. So I think. Uh, in my own sort of personal, uh, you know, hierarchy of shows like this, I would put this more like a Battlestar Galactica than a Lost. Lost, I mm. never want to see again because so, it, it was like <laughs> it was almost entirely building up to something that wasn't there. Whereas Battlestar Galactica, yeah, you know, whatever. It was the endless quest. Nobody really cared uh, other than when they got to the end of the show. And in between, we had these amazing character-driven stories that were gripping and fantastic. And that's kind of how I feel about this, is that leading up to, I would say the first six seasons, basically, leading up to season seven, we had a great show that did do callbacks very well, intelligently, parceled them out well, and only had a few missteps. And that is definitely worth re-watching. Uh, and then seven and eight, you know, it's not like it suddenly became a terrible show. They just didn't live up to, I said actually on the last uh, show that season seven couldn't really, I didn't think it could be really judged until we'd seen season eight. And unfortunately, right. I think season eight does, you know, sort of brings season seven down. But like I say, it's not like it suddenly turned into garbage. They're still good show. It's still a good show. They're still good seasons, just nowhere near for me as good there's, as there's the previous good six. in him. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I Just feel to bring it. Return of the Jedi it. Yeah, all yeah, yeah. the way back around. <laughs> Tell your podcaster you were right. <laughs> also, I'm apparently way angry about Battlestar Galactica than Antony is. Oh. That's a show for another time. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Those last two episodes, I hate them, but I will happily rewatch any of the other episodes. Whereas Lost, that can go in a garbage fire. <laughs> Mental they had a plan, note. did they? They had a plan. <laughs> Mental note suggests to Jason Snell we need to do a reverse draft episode of the incomparable for least favorite. Uh, for least favorite <laughs> no, novel. that's that's not our style. No, 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 no. <laughs> True. I have ignored epilogues before. The only good epilogue is Animal House. Um, yeah. If, if Chip would let me, I would take an Exacto knife and slice out the last pages of our copy of the last Harry Potter book. So I will continue to ignore epilogues and ignore chunks of season eight 
the last two and a half years, this has been my primary show, my primary fandom, and I adore these characters, and I'm not going to let them go. But I will not stop voicing the opinion that somewhere along the line, at whichever point in the production, that season eight was the point where I would have thrown the book across the room. Definitely hugely, hugely disappointed in the ending, because as people said, the ending is what so many people remember. But I have seven seasons. I mean, if you like stop at the end of the seventh season, it's on an upbeat note. Things are interesting, opens the way for other stories that people want to tell, that fans want to get into and explore. So that's going to be what I hold on to going forward. God, there must be so much fanfic of Voltron. Oh, there is. Imagine imagine all the season eight fanfic. My God. The fix it started <laughs> yeah. that very night. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. That yeah. very <laughs> night. Uh, I th- I think like Shannon, I am I am first in line for the tell-all making of Voltron Legendary Defender book. Um, I would love <laughs> to know. How long do the NDAs last? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> like I I would I would oh, love man, to know man. all of that stuff that we can. Uh, we've we've literally worked out four different alternate universes of possibilities of what happened during the production of this show. I am on the whole very positive on the show. In general, I'm amazed that a licensed property that went through two corporate masters survived as well as this one did. And that almost sounds like damning of faint praise. But on the whole, I'm much happier with the show because I know that endings are incredibly hard. And if you get, like Shannon was saying, seven eighths of a show that is great, then the the beauty of of having a creative mind and having a passion for characters and stories is such that i mean there 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 are things about allura's quote unquote end that look this is a show that merged a giant uh lion robot and and the atlas together and just decided that it could do that at the very end so uh, with 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 the threads that they leave open for theoretical spin-offs to their very successful media property I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Alora did not have some sort of, uh, you know, further presence in the Voltron verse, as it were. If anything, it's not that she's dead, it's that she's, she is ever present across all realities. That's, that's the way that I like to see it, where it, it isn't like, you know, she, she flew an airplane into a giant alien ship to blow it up. The beauty of, of the way that they've set the show up is that as let down as we can feel about various different parts of it, there are pockets of the multiverse that they give us so that we can believe what we want to believe in between the lines that they actually wrote. I have no idea what the possibility of a, of a spinoff is at this point, as extensively as I've worked with various members of the voice cast at conventions uh, over the last couple of years, I never broached this kind of subject with them. I never dug for information from them. If anything, they were overwhelmed by how enthusiastic the fandom was and they were just stunned at the outpouring of love and affection that they would get from fans. And occasionally they would get misplaced anger from people who decided that the voice actors decided the direction of the series script uh, and that it was somehow this actor's fault that this happened or that this happened or this other thing happened. I would find myself coming off of stage with Jeremy Shada and because one person made one poorly phrased tongue in cheek joke on Twitter. People decided that Jeremy Shada had just like excoriated the entire Voltron fandom. And it was news to both of us because we were pretty sure that we had come off of the stage talking about how 
exactly the the kinds of things that Shannon points to that that our passion for these characters and our passion for these stories uh, the company that owns it decided to end it a certain way but that doesn't mean that that the fans do not own the part of it that is etched into their hearts and it's it it, it is it is sometimes scary and sometimes weird out there and when people have the benefit of anonymity to to hide behind sometimes people get a little bit more forthright than they would be uh, saying their actual name on a podcast when they feel like, you know, they, they can, they can get away with just, you know, saying whatever they want to say. So I, if, if anything, I hope that people are open to the world of Ultron continuing and maybe once it is less stuck to these core characters from this first show, the thing that I like to think of about a potential spinoff is that they can kind of go a lot freer with a lot of different types of storytelling that they want to do and not be as hectored in by toy selling. So that's a, that's a long rambly way uh, with multiple unclosed loops of, of saying that uh, I, I really liked the show and I hope that people give it a chance and don't take uh, Anthony's position on lost with regard to Voltron. <laughs> and as far as my series wrap up thoughts, did I mention that I got vehicle Voltron? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so basically perfect season for you, right? Uh, you know, just in the annals, in the annals. Listen, it was great talking with you all about this show for more than two years for in eight seasons. Uh, so Have we been recording for two years? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I never press <laughs> stop. Editing, That's man. a lot of bandwidth. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a pretty big hard drive here. Listen, uh, thank you all so much. Thank you to our listeners who've been with us uh, following Voltron uh, through the ups and downs. And this was a landmark series, I think. And Joaquim Dos Santos, Lauren Montgomery, Montgomery, the creative staff, the voice actors, they've got a lot to be proud of to have generated so much passion for this show from not just kids, but old folks like us. So I don't know what the next animated project that I'm going to fall in love with is, but uh, when it is, I hope that I see some of you on the other side of the microphone with me. And with I, I that, think I saw something about Joaquin doing like an X-Men show or something. Spider-Man. Uh, I think Spider-Man. Joaquim Dos Santos is Some, attached to the, the Spider-Verse sequel, and oh, Lauren Montgomery yeah. seems to be attached to a potential Spider-Gwen project or something like that. So there is stuff. Well, there's there a lot stuff. to love, everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the TV podcast and closing the books on Voltron Legendary Defender. Thanks for joining us. It's been an honor flying with you. And remember, wear the right socks. Vrepitsar. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I didn't talk about how much I love Slav. I hate Slav so much. <laughs> I love him so much! <laughs>